Section 7 of the Good Dog Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stikeen, Part 1 by John Muir. In the summer of 1880, I sent out from Fort Wrangell in a canoe to continue the exploration of the icy region of southeastern Alaska, begun in the fall of 1879. After the necessary provisions, blankets, etc., had been collected and stowed away, and my Indian crew were in their places ready to start while a crowd of their relatives and friends on the wharf were bidding them goodbye and good luck, my companion, the Reverend S. H. Young, for whom we were waiting, at last came aboard, followed by a little black dog that immediately made himself at home by curling up in a hollow among the baggage. I like dogs, but this one seemed so small and worthless that I objected to him going, and asked the missionary why he was taking him. Such a little helpless creature will only be in the way, I said. You had better pass him up to the Indian boys on the wharf to be taken home to play with the children. This trip is not likely to be good for toy dogs. The poor silly thing will be in the rain and snow for weeks and months and will require care like a baby. But his master assured me that he would be no trouble at all, that he was a perfect wonder of a dog, could endure cold and hunger like a bear, swim like a seal, and was wondrous, wise, and cunning, etc., making out a list of virtues to show he might be the most interesting member of the party. Nobody could hope to unravel the lines of his ancestry. In all the wonderfully mixed and varied dog tribe, I never saw any creature very much like him, though in some of his sly, soft, gliding motions and gestures, he brought the fox to mind. He was short-legged and bunchy-bodied, and his hair, though smooth, was long and silky, and slightly waved, so that when the wind was at his back it ruffled, making him look shaggy. At first sight, his only noticeable feature was his fine tail, which was about as airy and shady as a squirrel's, and was carried curling forward almost to his nose. On closer inspection, you might notice his thin, sensitive ears and sharp eyes with cunning tan spots above them. Mr. Young told me that when the little fellow was a pup, about the size of a wood rat, he was presented to his wife by an Irish prospector at Sitka, and that on his arrival at Fort Wrangell, he was adopted with enthusiasm by the Stickeen Indians as a sort of new good luck totem, was named Stickeen for the tribe, and became a universal favorite, petted, protected, and admired wherever he went and regarded as a mysterious fountain of wisdom. On our trip, he soon proved himself a queer character, odd, concealed, independent, keeping invincibly quiet, and doing many little puzzling things that piqued my curiosity. As we sailed week after week through the long, intricate channels and inlets among the innumerable islands and mountains of the coast, he spent most of the dull days in sluggish ease, motionless, and apparently as unobserving as if in a deep sleep. But I discovered that somehow he always knew what was going on. When the Indians were about to shoot their ducks or seals, or when anything along the shore was exciting our attention, he would rest his chin on the edge of the canoe and calmly look out like a dreamy-eyed tourist. 
and when he heard us talking about making a landing, he immediately roused himself to see what sort of a place we were coming to, and made ready to jump overboard and swim ashore as soon as the canoe neared the beach. Then, with a vigorous shake to get rid of the brine in his hair, he ran into the woods to hunt small game. But though always the first out of the canoe, he was always the last to get in it. When we were ready to start, he could never be found. We soon found out, however, that though we could not see him at such times, he saw us, and from the corner of the briars and huckleberry bushes in the fringe of the woods was watching the canoe with wary eye. For as soon as we were fairly off, he came trotting down the beach, plunged into the surf, and swam after us, knowing well that we would cease rowing to take him in. When the contrary little vagabond came alongside, he was lifted by the neck, held at arm's length a moment to drip, and dropped aboard. We tried to cure him of this trick by compelling him to swim a long way, as if we had a mind to abandon him, but this did no good. The longer the swim, the better he seemed to like it. Though capable of great idleness, he never failed to be ready for all sorts of adventures and excursions. One pitch-dark rainy night, we landed about ten o'clock at the mouth of the salmon stream when the water was phosphorescent. The salmon were running, and the myriad fins of the onrushing multitude were churning all the stream into a silvery glow, wonderfully beautiful and oppressive in the ebon darkness. To get a good view of the show, I set out with one of the Indians and sailed up through the midst of it to the foot of a rapid about half a mile from camp, where the swift current dashing over the rocks made the luminous glow most glorious. Happening to look back down the stream while the Indian was catching a few of the struggling fish, I saw a long spreading fan of light like the tail of a comet, which we thought must be made by some big strange animal that was pursuing us. On it came with its magnificent train, until we imagined we could see the monster's head and eyes, but it was only Stikeen, who, finding I had left the camp, came swimming after me to see what was up. When we camped early, the best hunter of the crew usually went to the woods for a deer, and Stikeen was sure to be at his heels, provided I had not gone out. For, strange I say, though I never carried a gun, he always followed me, forsaking the hunter and even his master to share my wanderings. The days that were too stormy for sailing I spent in the woods or the adjacent mountains. Wherever my studies called me, and Stikine always insisted on going with me, however wild the weather, gliding like a fox through the dripping huckleberry bushes and thorny tangles of panics and rubus, scarce stirring their rain-laden leaves, wading and wallowing through the snow, swimming icy streams, skipping over logs and rocks and the crevices of glaciers with the patience and endurance of a determined mountaineer, never tiring or getting discouraged. Once he followed me over a glacier, the surface of which was so crusty and rough that it cut his feet until every step was marked with blood, but he trotted on with Indian fortitude until I noticed his red track and, taking pity on him, made him a set of moccasins out of a handkerchief. However great his troubles, he never asked for help or made any complaint, as if, like a philosopher, he had learned that without hard work and suffering there could be no pleasure worth having. Yet none of us was able to make out what Stikine was really good for. He seemed to meet danger and hardships without anything like reason, 
insisted on having his own way, never obeyed an order, and the hunter could never set him on anything or make him fetch the birds he shot. His equanimity was so steady it seemed due to want of feeling. Ordinary storms were pleasures to him, and as for mere rain, he flourished in it like a vegetable. No matter what advances you might make, scarce a glance or a tail-wag would you get for your pains. But though he was apparently as cold as a glacier, and about as impervious to fun, I tried hard to make his acquaintance, guessing there must be something worthwhile hidden beneath so much courage, endurance, and love of wild weathery adventure. No superannuated mastiff or bulldog grown old in office surpassed this fluffy midget in stoic dignity. He sometimes reminded me of a small, squat, unshakable desert cactus, for he never displayed a single trace of the merry, tricksy, elfish self of the terriers and collies that we all know, nor of their touching affection and devotion. Like children, most small dogs beg to be loved and allowed to love, but Stakine seemed a very Diognese, asking only to be let alone, a true child of the wilderness, holding the even tenor of his hidden life with the silence and serenity of nature. His strength of character lay in his eyes. They looked as old as the hills and as young and as wild. I never tired of looking into them. It was like looking into a landscape, but they were small and rather deep set and had no explaining lines around them to give out particulars. I was accustomed to look into the faces of plants and animals, and I watched the little sphinx more and more keenly as an interesting study, but there is no estimating the wit and wisdom concealed and latent in our lower fellow mortals until made manifest by profound experiences, for it is through suffering that dogs as well as saints are developed and made perfect. After exploring the Sumdum and Taku fjords and their glaciers, we sailed through Stevens Passage into Lynn Canal and thence through Icy Strait into Cross Sound, searching for unexplored inlets leading toward the great fountain ice fields of the Fairweather Range. Here, while the tide was in our favor, we were accompanied by a fleet of icebergs drifting out to the ocean from Glacier Bay. Slowly, we paddled around Vancouver's Point, Wimbledon, our frail canoe tossed like a feather on the massive heaving swells coming in past Cape Spencer. For miles, the sound is bounded by precipitous mural cliffs, which lashed with wave spray and their heads hidden in the clouds, looked terribly threatening and stern. Had our canoe been crushed or upset, we could have made no landing here, for the cliffs as high as those of Yosemite might sink sheer into deep water, Eagerly, we scanned the wall on the north side for the first sign of an opening fjord or harbor, all of us anxious, except Stikine, who dozed in peace or gazed dreamily at the tremendous precipices when he heard us talking about them. At length, we made the joyful discovery of the mouth of the inlet now called Taylor Bay, and about five o'clock reached the head of it and encamped in a spruce grove near the front of a large glacier. While camp was being made, Joe the hunter climbed the mountain wall on the east side of the fjord in pursuit of wild goats, while Mr. Young and I went to the glacier. We found that it is separated from the waters of the inlet by a tide-washed moraine and extends an abrupt barrier 
all the way across from wall to wall of the inlet, a distance of about three miles. But our most interesting discovery was that it had recently advanced, though again slightly receding. A portion of the terminal moraine had been plowed up and shoved forward, uprooting and overwhelming the woods on the east side. Many of the trees were down and buried, or nearly so. Others were leaning away from the ice cliffs, ready to fall, and some stood erect, with the bottom of the ice plow still beneath their roots, and its lofty crystal spires towering high above their tops. The spectacle presented by these century-old trees, standing close beside a spiry wall of ice, with their branches almost touching it, was most novel and striking. And while I climbed around the front and a little way up the west side of the glacier, I found that it had swelled and increased in height and width in accordance with its advance and carried away the outer ranks of trees on its bank. On our way back from the camp after these first observations, I planned a far and wide excursion for the morrow. I awoke early, called not only by the glacier, which had been on my mind all night, but by a grand flood storm, the wind was blowing a gale from the north, and the rain was flying with the clouds in a wide, passionate, horizontal flood, as if it were all passing over the country instead of falling on it. The main perennial streams were blooming high above their banks, and hundreds of new ones, roaring like the sea, almost covered the lofty gray walls of the inlet with white cascades and falls. I had intended making a cup of coffee and getting something like a breakfast before starting, but when I heard the storm and looked out, I made haste to join it, for many of nature's finest lessons are to be found in her storms, and if careful to keep in the right relations with them, we may go safely abroad with them, rejoicing in the grandeur and beauty of their works and ways, and chanting with the old Norsemen. The blast of the tempest aids our oars, the hurricane is our servant, and drives us whither we wish to go. So omitting breakfast, I put a piece of bread in my pocket and hurried away. Mr. Young and the Indians were asleep, and so I hoped was Stikine, but I had not gone a dozen rods before he left his bed in the tent and came boring through the blast after me. That a man should welcome storms for their exhilarating music and motion and go forth to see God making landscapes is reasonable enough, but what fascination could there be in such tremendous weather for a dog? Surely nothing akin to human enthusiasm for scenery or geology. Anyhow, on he came, breakfastless, through the choking blast. I stopped and did my best to turn him back. Now don't, I said, shouting to make myself heard in the storm. Now don't, Stikeen. What has gotten into your queer noddle now? You must be daft. This wild day has nothing for you. There is no game abroad, nothing but weather. Go back to camp and keep warm. Get a good breakfast with your master and be sensible for once. I can't carry you all day or feed you, and this storm will kill you. But nature, it seems, was at the bottom of the affair, and she gains her ends with dogs as well as with men, making us do as she likes, shoving and pulling us along her ways, however rough, all but killing us at times, and getting her lessons driven hard home. 
After I had stopped again and again, shouting good warning advice, I saw that he was not to be shaken off. As well might the earth try to shake off the moon. I had once led his master into trouble when he fell on one of the topmost jags of a mountain and dislocated his arm. Now the turn of his humble companion was coming. The pitiful little wanderer just stood there in the wild, drenched and blinking, saying doggedly, Where thou goest, I will go. So at last I told him to come on if he must, and gave him a piece of the bread I had in my pocket. Then we struggled on together, and thus began the most memorable of all my wild days. The level flood, driving hard in our faces, thrashed and washed us wildly until we got into the shelter of a grove on the east side of the glacier near the front where we stopped a while for breath and to listen and look out. The exploration of the glacier was my main object, but the wind was too high to allow excursions over its open surface where one might be dangerously shoved while balancing for a jump on the brink of a crevice. In the meantime, the storm was a fine study. Here, the end of the glacier, descending an abrupt swell of resisting rock about 500 feet high, leans forward and falls in ice cascades. And as the storm came down the glacier from the north, Stikine and I were beneath the main current of the blast, while favorably located to see and hear it. What a psalm the storm was singing, and how fresh the smell of the washed earth and leaves, and how sweet the still small voices of the storm. Detached wafts and swirls were coming through the woods with music from the leaves and branches and furrowed boles, and even from the splintered rocks and ice crags overhead, many of the tones soft and low and flute-like, as if each leaf and tree crag and spire were a tuned reed. A broad torrent draining the side of the glacier, now swollen by scores and new streams from mountains, were rolling boulders along its rocky channel with thudding, bumping, muffled sounds, rushing toward the bay with tremendous energy, as if in haste to get out of the mountainside, the waters above and beneath calling to each other and all to the ocean, their home. Looking southward from our shelter, we had this great torrent and the forested mountain wall above it on our left, the spiry ice crags on our right, and smooth gray gloom ahead. I tried to draw the marvelous scene in my notebook, but the rain blurred the page in spite of all my pains to shelter it, and the sketch was almost worthless. When the wind began to abate, I tried the east side of the glacier. All the trees standing on the edge of the woods were barked and bruised, showing high ice mark in a very telling way, while tens of thousands of those that had stood for centuries on the bank of the glacier further out lay crushed and being crushed. In many places, I could see down 50 feet or so beneath the margin of the glacier mill, where trunks from one or two feet in diameter were being ground to pulp against outstanding rock ribs and bosses of the bank. About three miles above the front of the glacier, I climbed to the surface of it by means of axe steps made easy for Stikine. As far as the eye could reach, the level or nearly level glacier stretched away indefinitely beneath the gray sky, a seemingly boundless prairie of ice. The rain continued and grew colder, which I did not mind, but a dim snowy look in the drooping clouds made me hesitate about venturing far from land. 
No trace of the west shore was visible, and in case the clouds should settle and give snow, or the wind again become violent, I feared getting caught in a tangle of crevices. Snow crystals, the flowers of the mountain clouds, are frail, beautiful things, but terrible when flying on storm winds in darkening, benumbing swarms, or when welded together into glaciers full of deadly crevices. Watching the weather, I sauntered about on the crystal sea. For a mile or two out, I found the ice remarkably safe. The marginal crevices were mostly narrow, while the few wider ones were easily avoided by passing around them, and the clouds began to open here and there. Thus encouraged, I at last pushed out for the other side, for nature can make us do anything she likes. At first we made rapid progress, and the sky was not very threatening. While I took bearings occasionally with the pocket compass to enable me to find my way back more surely in case the storm should become blinding, but the structure lines of the glacier were my main guide. Toward the west side, we came to a closely creviced section in which we had to make long, narrow tacks and doublings, tracing the edges of the tremendous traverse and longitudinal crevices, many of which were from 20 to 30 feet wide and perhaps a thousand feet deep. Beautiful and awful. In working a way through them, I was severely cautious, but Stikeen came on as unhesitating as the flying clouds. The widest crevice that I could jump, he would leap without so much as a halting to take a look at it. The weather was now making quit changes, scattering bits of dazzling brightness through the wintry gloom. At rare intervals, when the sun broke forth wholly free, the glacier was seen from shore to shore with a bright array of encompassing mountains, partly revealed, wearing the clouds as garments, while the prairie bloomed and sparkled with a rised light from myriads of washed crystals. Then, suddenly, all the glorious show would be darkened and blotted out. Stikine seemed to care for none of these things, bright or dark, nor for the crevices, wells, molens, or swift, flashing streams into which he might fall. The little adventurer was only about two years old, yet nothing seemed novel to him, nothing daunted him. He showed neither caution nor curiosity, wonder nor fear, but bravely trotted on as if glaciers were playgrounds. His stout muffled body seemed all one skipping muscle, and it was truly wonderful to see how swiftly and to all appearance heedlessly he flashed across nerve-trying chasms six or eight feet wide. His courage was so unwavering that it seemed to be due to dullness of perception, as if he were only blindly bold, and I kept warning him to be careful. For we had been close to companions on so many wilderness trips that I had formed the habit of talking to him as if he were a boy and understood every word. End of section 7. Recording by Mirabelle.